So we live in a world where people believe that they know about a certain topic because they've consumed some Instagram posts on it. Now, I have nothing against Instagram posts. A lot of them are great and I make a lot of them myself. That being said, the fact that Instagram posts are starting to be seen as reliable sources of information by more and more people is at the same time kind of comical, but it's also scary and this should concern you. Today, we're going to dive into that and other ways in which humans can be utterly, utterly stupid. Yo, 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 what is up, Ryuji here, and welcome back to the Animal Advocate Podcast. I miss you, I love you, thank you for your time. This is a show where we talk about the social aspect of being vegan in the world and advocating for animals in your day-to-day -day life. Today, I want to prove to you why humans are stupid. <laughs> and the reason I want to do that is because I truly believe that our inability to think clearly is a root cause of many problems we have in the world. But also, I think it's the root cause of many problems you might have in your life. And quite simply, I think that if you don't understand the simple concepts I'm going to lay out here, it's going to cause a lot of misery in your life. I'm going to make four points that I think will prove pretty clearly how we're stupid. <laughs> and I say we because I'm not excluding myself from this. I don't want to sound like I'm saying, oh, look, all these humans, they're so stupid. But look at me. Ho, ho, ho. I am the smart one. No, that's, that's not what's happening here. I, I think that I'm also stupid. I just have somewhat of an awareness of how I don't think clearly, which allows me to mitigate some of my stupidity some of the time. I still think that <laughs> I'm vastly stupid. And by the way, that's one thing that you will find when you talk to people who are very accomplished, whatever that means to you, people who have done great things, oftentimes they have a mindset where they truly believe that they don't know much. And essentially, in my experience, that happens because the more you learn about something, the more you become aware of all the stuff you don't know. And that basically shows you that, hey, I, I, I really don't know anything. But anyways, to get us started off here, I want to start with some questions to you, or really rather one question. Has there ever been anything that you have believed to be true and you believed it so strongly, but later you believe or you, you realized that you were wrong about that thing? So for example, when I was a kid, I believed in Santa Claus. I was convinced that Santa Claus existed. In fact, I remember this one time where I wrote a lengthy letter and I couldn't handwrite at the time, so I had my mom write it. But we wrote a lengthy letter to Santa Claus so that he could send me a real magic wand. I wanted a real magic wand because I wanted to cast real magic spells. I was convinced that if I wrote a nice enough letter, Santa would come to me and give me a real magic wand with which I could perform real magic. I was convinced of this. Okay, but obviously later on, I realized that I was completely wrong. I was incredibly mistaken. <laughs> but still, at some point, I actually believed this. Now, later on in my life, I had different beliefs about pretty important stuff. Okay, I think one of the most important things that you can think about in your life is your personal happiness. What does it mean to be happy? How do you become happy? So I thought a lot about this, and I've done a lot of research on this. I've read a lot of books on this. I've really tried to understand this because, as you might know, I used to be a pretty miserable kid. Now, when I never thought about this, and I was a miserable kid, 
I subconsciously thought that happiness was having the things that I wanted in my life. It's pretty much the narrative that society pushed upon me when I was born into this society. I didn't really think about it, but that's what society tells you. That's what the media tells you. That's what, that's what consumerism is. It tells you that if you have a problem, you can solve it by buying something. If you want to be happy, you should just buy something. Once you have a nice car, a nice house, nice clothes, nice this, nice that, whatever it is, once you buy this one thing, once you have something in your life, then you will be happy. Very quickly, when I started studying happiness, I realized that that was completely wrong. And the first thing I thought was that, okay, it's not about the things that I have. Having things is not going to make me happy, but having experiences is going to make me happy. So maybe going on a nice vacation, visiting a place that I've always wanted to visit, going on a nice hike, spending good times with friends. I thought that that was the basis of happiness. I still do think those things are very important and you can enjoy them for sure. But later I realized that I don't think that is what causes happiness. I thought that, okay, it's actually not about the experiences I have. It's about who I am as a person and how I grow. If I spend each and every day becoming better as a person, progress can be linked to my happiness. Again, I think that's a very important idea, but What's really important to realize here is that at each and every point of my journey, I was convinced that I had the absolute answer. Okay, later on, I realized that I don't think that's the full picture either because being happy is about being present. If I can just be present to the moment and just be in the now, not worry about what has happened in the past or what's going to come next, I can just enjoy the present moment and just be happy regardless of the experiences I'm having, regardless of where I am in my journey of growth as a person, I can be happy by being present. So I thought to myself, if I meditate every day and I learn to be present more of the time, I will be happier. Now, I do think that's a very important part of the puzzle for sure. And I think that being present is awesome. I love being present. I love meditating. It's awesome. But again, later on, I realized that I don't think that's it either. And now where I stand on this issue is that I believe that happiness should be an assumption. We should assume that we're all good and that anything getting in the way of that is an obstacle. So is being present good? Yeah, it's awesome. Is having great experiences good? Yeah, it's awesome. Is growing good? Yeah, it's awesome. But those shouldn't be requirements for being happy because if they are, that assumes that I am unhappy. I am unhappy, therefore I need this, this, and that in order to be happy. Either I need material stuff, either I need experiences, I need growth, I need presence. The assumption here for each and every one of these things is that if I don't have X, Y, or Z, then I am not happy. By default, I am unhappy, therefore I need to do something to fix myself in order to be happy. Now I believe that I am happy by default. There's stuff that's in the way that I get to let go of so that I can access my innermost authentic self as a happy present being. A lot of you listening probably had this experience around becoming vegan, where you had the belief that consuming animal products, exploiting and killing animals for food, clothing, entertainment, research, you thought that was normal, or maybe you didn't think about it, but it was just 
another part of living life. You wake up, you eat eggs, you eat cheese, you drink a glass of milk, you eat a steak for dinner. It's just a normal part of life. Maybe you thought that these foods were essential for you, that you needed them in order to be healthy, in order to gain protein or calcium or whatever it is that you believed. Maybe you believed that was the natural thing to do. We are the natural top predators or something like that. And then later you realize that all those beliefs were false, that you were wrong about something. Now, the important thing here is I want you to think back to that experience of being so convinced of something. And I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that person you were when you believed this or that. It, it could be anything I talked about. It could be anything else that you used to believe. And just try to remember how utterly convinced you were of how right you were about that thing that you thought was correct. Now, our natural instincts, and this is what I did a million times, when we realize that we were wrong about something, is we tell ourselves, oh, I was wrong about that. But now, now I am right. And I think that is the opposite conclusion to the conclusion we should actually reach. What I think is that if you have ever believed something strongly enough that you were convinced it was true, but then later on, you realized that it wasn't true, the only thing, the lesson that you should get out of that is that, hey, I could still be wrong about anything. I can't ever be too sure about something. I can always, always, always be wrong about something. I'll give you an example. As funny as this sounds and as unbelievable as it may be, I believe that I could be wrong about the ethics of being vegan. I truly believe that. I don't think so. I think I'm right because I thought it through very thoroughly, but I am open-minded to the idea of being wrong. Now, what I mean by that is that on a personal level, I will probably never consume animal products because I don't want to, but I do believe right now that being vegan is a moral obligation, that there's no way to justify what we do to animals. I truly believe that. But at the same time, I am open-minded to being wrong about that because I've been wrong about so many things that I believed so firmly that. I just have to be open-minded to that. I just read a little post before recording this podcast, which actually really inspired me to make this podcast. I've, I've been wanting to make it for a long time, but this really inspired me. And it was a post by Dr. Garth Davis. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but he talked about the Dunning-Kruger effect. And what he said is the Dunning-Kruger effect was described in 1999 when they studied certain people and found that the less they knew, the more confident they were in their belief. And this is just the first problem I want to talk about of how we're incredibly stupid as humans is that not only we don't know stuff, <laughs> we're not even aware that we don't know stuff. And when we don't know something, a lot of us become convinced that we actually know it. Now, to start off, the second thing I want to talk about, I want to share with you a quote by one of my favorite authors, Yuval Noah Harari. Now, if you've been following me, you know that I, I love... Yuval Noah Harari. And by the way, one of the things that we should be cautious of is realizing that anyone that we listen to is also a human being and they're also fallible. So, uh, you know, my kind of struggle with this is that I love Yuval Noah Harari, but I got to realize that he's also human and he could be wrong about certain things. I can't blindly believe everything that he says just because I admire him and he changed my life. Although I can't also listen to him on a lot of things and he's probably a lot more clear thinking in a lot of, in a lot of ways than me. Anyways, in his book, Homo Deus, he wrote, In the past, censorship worked by blocking the flow of information. 
In the 21st century, censorship works by flooding people with irrelevant information. Look, I've talked to a lot of people in my time, and something that people often say is they say something along the lines of, I've done my research on this. I've researched this. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem is a twofold problem. The first problem is that for most people, I did research on this means something along the lines of, I saw an Instagram post on that. I read an Instagram caption by a random anonymous account that talked about this. Or it's, I did a Google search on that and... I read the first article that popped up or I watched a couple of YouTube videos on that or I, I listened to a podcast episode on that. Now, when you're doing research on something, it's not a bad idea to do those things. But those are a terrible way to convince yourself that you've done research on a certain topic. It's not because something is written in an article or it's not because something is said on a YouTube video or in a podcast like this podcast that what is being said is true. Look, I could be making all of this up and you should be critical of that. You should be thinking that. You should ask yourself questions like, why is Ryuji telling me this? Is there something in it for him that I'm not seeing that would lead him to want to deceive me? You should think about that. How does Ryuji even know what he's talking about? You should ask yourself these questions. So that's the first problem. People have no idea what it means to do research. But now the second problem is, even if you want to do deeper research, look, it's incredibly difficult to actually do research. And I firmly believe that most people don't have the necessary skills in order to do proper research on a topic. For example, do you realize that just because something is said inside a documentary doesn't mean that the thing is true? Let's go even deeper. It's not because a certain documentary has a website with sources, with a sources page, that everything that is said in the documentary is true. Now, going further, it's not because there are actually linked studies that those studies are correct. Now, I'm not making a case for being hypercritical of everything. I'm just trying to make you aware that those things that I just described doesn't mean that something is true. When I was in college, for my final year of college, I had to do a research project. My major was in education, and I had to do this big research project thing that was not fun. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. But one of the things that we talked about that really stayed with me that I still think about today is this question around how do we create knowledge? Because for that research project, we had to create knowledge in a variety of different ways. On one hand, we had to go look up peer-reviewed articles, academic research on the topic on which we were writing our thing. By the way, I did my research projects on education and social media and how social media can be used as a powerful educational tool, which is what I try to do today. But that's what I did my research project on. Now, on one hand, we had to look up academic research. So actually read peer-reviewed papers and extract knowledge out of that, extract knowledge out of the research that other people have done. On the other hand, we also had to do something where we interviewed experts 
in the fields that we are trying to understand or interview people who might have insights on the topic that we are presenting. And now the third thing is we had to go experience what we were talking about and do an internship or volunteer at an organization or company that was doing what we were trying to talk about. So I interned in a company that used social media to educate the world. That's what I did. And what we talked about is essentially the idea that by reading peer-reviewed research, by interviewing people, and by actually having experience, we're going to learn relevant information to what we are trying to study. And none of those are right or wrong. They're just different ways of acquiring knowledge. And we cannot discredit one or the other. In the academic world, for example, it is often thought that, well, stuff that has been studied, that, that's, that is the highest level of knowledge. That is the most trustworthy knowledge. And there are good arguments for that. But what I learned and what we discussed is that sometimes by actually having an experience, you can learn things that have never been studied in a way that's very practical to what you're trying to do. So for example, I learned a lot more in terms of practical things by doing an internship than by reading academic research. That helped me much more become a more, in the real world, that helped me become a more effective communicator and educator in the world that was far more effective than reading peer-reviewed papers. So they're just different ways of learning stuff. Now, let's go even deeper than that. Previously, I said that one of the problems I think we have is that most people don't have the skills to properly research something. And by the way, this is not because people are stupid. It's because we're just not taught this. I'm just very, for example, I'm very fortunate to have gone to college and to have taken a degree where these things matter. And so I know what it means for a study to be peer reviewed. But if I hadn't done that, and I'm not in the majority of people here, then I would have no idea what it means for research to be peer reviewed and why that even matters. And to explain real quick, basically the peer review system is someone will do a study, will do research on a certain topic, will write a paper, and then they'll submit it to be published. And before it gets published, it'll be sent out anonymously to different people who are established experts in that particular field. And those people will review that study and determine, has this study been conducted in a way that makes sense? Does the meth methodology make sense? And then do the results make sense? Does the way that the person wrote this make sense? Is this viable information? Or not viable, that's not the word I'm looking for. Is this believable information? And they will determine that to the best of their ability. Because look, when someone publishes an article on the internet, What's great is that that makes it very accessible, but the downside is that no one is vetting that. So you don't know whether the information presented is, is real or not. And if it's written in a confident way and they seem like they have sources and it's very easy to write something in a way that's very convincing, well, it's very easy to believe that, but who who is there to judge whether or not what they're saying is right or wrong? No one's there to judge. You have to judge for yourself. The problem is that's very difficult if you're not an expert in the field. If you read an internet article on nutrition and you have no nutrition training whatsoever, how are you going to determine whether or not what is being said is true or not? You can't. The only way that you're going to determine that is, oh, does this sound believable? Do I like this person? That's basically what you're thinking. And it's incredibly stupid. 
So the peer-reviewed system gets around that by sending the paper anonymously to other people who are the most qualified to judge the paper. And then if enough people are okay with it, then it gets published. So when you read that, at least you know that it's been vetted by other people who don't have uh, they, they, they don't have a stake in the matter, meaning that it doesn't matter to them whether or not the thing was published because they don't even know who wrote the damn thing. So to them, it doesn't matter. That's why it's anonymous to keep it as non-biased as possible. Now, that being said, other problems with that system. Of course, there are problems with that system. For example, how do you know if someone is qualified? What if the person reading it is somehow believed to be an established expert, but for whatever reason, they make a mistake when they read the thing. They're also humans. They're also fallible. How do we know that? We wouldn't know that. And as people outside that world, we don't even have a viable way to go determine that for ourselves. Now, beyond that, let's say even if you read a peer-reviewed study, if you're not an expert in the field, how do you know you even understood what is being said correctly? A lot of peer-reviewed studies use very complicated language that makes it very hard for people to understand what they're even saying. So you can read that, but then how do you know that you actually understood it correctly? You have no idea. And also on any given topic, there are so many different studies and there are many topics on which there are actually conflicting studies that have been published that have conflicting results. How do you go determine what's right and what's wrong? It's extremely difficult. And to most people, we don't have the training to do that. And even if we did have the training, I think it would be very easy to make mistakes on that. So how do we actually get around this? For example, the way that I get around it, and I'm the first to admit that this is not a perfect system, but literally the way that I personally get around it is I find people that I trust, that I believe have my best interest in mind, and that are going to look at things from a non-biased standpoint. So for example, look at a website like nutritionfacts.org. I choose to trust that website. So when Michael Greger, Dr. Michael Greger, does a talk and talks about this or that topic and backs it up with studies that he shows on a screen, I just believe him. And that is my best guess of how I can create knowledge around the topic of nutrition. Now, it's not perfect because Dr. Greger can make mistakes and he might lie about certain things. I'm not saying he is. I, I truly trust him. But look, and I don't, he wouldn't be mad at me for saying this. We, we just have to think those things. We have to be aware of those things, right? So I know it's not a perfect system, but that's all I got. Now, on this point, I read a book called Presuasion by Robert Cialdini. Awesome book. And it talked about something that really ties into what I just said. And basically what he talks about is the example he gives, and I'm going to give you the lesson after the example is he says, when you look at the media, the media is not good at telling people what to think, but the media is really good at telling people what to think about. And what he meant by that is that when we hear a lot about a certain topic, then we believe that the topic is important whether or not it's actually the case. So look, a very relevant and recent example to this is how everyone is talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. I have heard multiple people in YouTube videos saying, 
Oh, things, things, things are getting so out of hand now. Look, so much upheaval going on now. These really important issues. It's worse than ever. It's worse than ever. That's really the one I want to concentrate on because really it's not worse than ever. It's just being talked about. And because it's talked about, people now think that now this is an important thing when it's always been an important thing. In the book, he gives an example of if there is a certain political issue that's on the news again and again and again and again, people will think that that is the most important issue that they should be concerned about, whether or not that's actually true. And the reason I bring this up is to illustrate the third point that I want to make here, which is that we have mental biases as humans. We do not think rationally as humans. We are 100% emotional. And now, does that mean that we can't make rational decisions? No. It just means that we have to be aware of this. Again, anytime you see any other person being stupid, your thought shouldn't be, oh, they're so stupid, I'm smarter than that. Your thought should be, how am I doing the same thing as them? Look, when I see people being incredibly stupid, this whole Karen's movement, let's say, that's going on right now, when I see that, I don't think to myself, oh, look at these Karens, they're so stupid. I think to myself, okay, this is the level of stupidity that humans are capable of. How do I make sure that I do not act like that in any area of my life? Because I don't think I'm immune to that. I don't think I'm immune to that. I think that all humans are cut from the same cloth, which means on one hand that what one person could do, another person can do, but on the other hand, it also means that when you see someone being incredibly stupid, unthoughtful, mean, cruel, whatever it is, I am also capable of that. And I always want to be conscious of that. One example I want to give you to illustrate this concept that we have mental biases is talking about the sunk cost fallacy. The way I learned this is through the word investment, though the words are not important. This is the effect that when you pour resources into something subjectively, you have a harder time letting go of that thing. So the example that I like to give for this, and I've given this before in podcasts and in videos, I believe, is imagine you go to the movie theater and you buy a $10 movie ticket to go watch a movie. You buy the ticket, you walk into the movie theater, the movie starts. And very quickly, you realize that you're not enjoying that movie. It's really boring. You don't like it. And you ask yourself, maybe I should leave. Now, what happens is that if you feel resistance leaving in that moment, which most people do, it's because you've bought the movie ticket, you spent $10, you've invested in it, and therefore it feels painful to let go of that investment. You want to get your money's worth. Now, I want you to picture the situation where you're in, the, you're in the movie theater, you're watching the movie, but now it's not just 10 minutes that pass, but maybe half an hour or an hour. You're an hour into the movie and you realize, I do not like this movie. It's boring. I, I just, I don't know what to do. I don't like the characters. I don't like the story. It's predictable. It's boring, whatever it is. Well, what happens is that because on top of having spent $10 on the movie tickets and you sat there for an hour. So you invested an hour of your time into the movie. You're less likely to let go of it. Even though the most rational thing to do would be to walk out. You're never going to get your time back. It's the most important asset that you have your time, but you're not willing to protect it because you've already poured resources into this movie. 
two hours in, maybe there's only 15 minutes of the film left, you're even less likely to walk out of the movie theater. Now you might hear this and tell yourself, I, I'd walk out. If I didn't like the movie, I would walk out. But chances are you wouldn't. The thing with mental biases is that you always have to assume that you have them. The lesson here is that for us, in order to think clearly, we got to study all those different biases that we have, all the different ways in which we think irrationally, be aware of them so that when we succumb to them, we can catch that and we can hopefully avoid that. It's not going to be 100%, but we have to move from the assumption that that is how that is how we act as human beings. When you invest a lot in something, you're not willing to let it go. And that's just one example. A huge area in which this happens is in relationships, where people spend years, sometimes decades, in toxic, unhealthy relationships because they've poured a lot of time into them. They've poured a lot of emotional capital into them. They've invested emotionally. Maybe they've invested money into the relationship. And so it feels very painful to let that go. Because what does that mean? Maybe it was a mistake. If you're friends with someone, if you're uh, married to someone for, say, 10 years <laughs> and it's not going well, well, if you think about leaving that relationship, it, it feels like, was everything up to this point a mistake? And you've invested so much into it that you don't want to let it go. It's a complete fallacy. It makes no absolute sense because what you're doing in effect is you're placing your short-term comfort above your long-term happiness. That's really what it is because the only downside to letting go of something that you invest a lot of time or whatever into is that in the short term, letting go of that is uncomfortable. But in the long term, that translates to greater happiness. It's the, you know, it's the better thing for you to do. Some of you right now listening to this, you are in a situation where you've invested a lot into a situation, maybe a relationship, but you don't want to let go of it because the pain of letting go that you perceive that as so great that is just overwhelming. What you're not seeing is that if you stay in that situation over the long term, the downside of that is much, 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 much greater. Because instead of this one burst of uncomfortable whatever, now you're going to be miserable for the entire rest of the time you stay in the situation. Like imagine the movie, you'd be much happier if you walked out after 10 minutes. Even after an hour and a half, you'd be happier if you walked out but it feels uncomfortable to walk out. So instead what you do is you stay the entire two and a half hours and you endure that for two and a half hours, which is much worse when you rationally think about it. But that being the case, we're not rational. So, okay. Now, and the context of animal rights and veganism, that's one of the reasons that people have a hard time giving up animal products and coming to terms with the fact that what we do to animals cannot be justified from their point of view. It contradicts everything you've thought your entire life and you've invested so much into the belief that it's normal, that maybe it's the right thing to do. Maybe that it's the healthy thing to do, that to let go of that seems very difficult. Maybe you're emotionally invested in certain foods that you think are traditional or cultural. Maybe consuming animal products is a big part of someone's life who you admire. Maybe you invested yourself in learning how to cook with animal products. There are all these ways in which we are invested into the beliefs that perpetuate the exploitation of animals that it's difficult to let those go. And like I said, this is just one way in which we think irrationally. There are a lot of ways and we should study them because otherwise we're going to fall prey to them and, well, we're going to act stupidly.
let's breathe for a second. Let's take a little break here. The podcast is not over. We're about two thirds in. So first, thank you for listening so far. I appreciate you. I really do. I hope you're getting some value out of this. But I wanted to throw in a break here because every time that I listen back to an episode I recorded, I always think to myself, this is really fast paced and kind of intense. <laughs> and I feel like it would be better if there would be places where we could breathe a little bit. Let me know what you think. And I was thinking about what I could potentially do during this break. If I should talk at all, maybe I should just play some music. I don't know, let me know, let me know. But I had an idea and I was like, why don't I use this time to talk to you about some anime that I like? I wanna recommend you some anime for the 2% of you who watch anime, or I don't know how, maybe this like none of you. Maybe you noticed by watching my YouTube videos that I love anime. It's one of my three hobbies to watch anime. I really, really enjoy it. And funny enough, one of the things that I thought about trying to do was to be an anime YouTuber. Now, I don't think I'm actually gonna go do that, but because I wanted to do that, that's why I put anime clips in my videos because I'm like, let me try to fulfill that dream. But anyways, one show that I want to recommend to you this time is a show called Re-Life. It's an amazing show. The show is so good. And basically what it is, it's this guy who, through some circumstance, he's 28 years old, but he's given a pill that transforms his body into the body of a high schooler. And he goes back to high school for a year to be a part of this experiment. And basically what it is, is because when he's 28, he's failed his life by his own standards. And so this is an opportunity for him to not start over, but to rehabilitate himself into the social world and to learn a bunch of lessons and to grow, et cetera, et cetera. It's a really heartwarming show, really fun, really funny. And it was just one of those shows that stayed with me after I finished watching it. It made me think, it made me feel, and I don't know, that's an experience that you don't always get to experience when you when you watch something. So check it out, real life. And without further ado, let's get back to the show. Now, the next thing I want to cover is worldviews, the frame through which you see the world. You can picture this like wearing glasses. When we experience the world and when we interpret the world, we always interpret it through the frame through which we see the world. So imagine you are wearing glasses. Well, you're always going to be wearing glasses that filter the information that comes in a certain way. For example, if you're wearing rose-colored glasses, like literally I mean, you're going to see the world in rose. Now, the way that this translates into more abstract frames is that, for example, if you view the world through a very positive frame, whatever happens, you're going to see the positive in it. Maybe you're going to see a lesson out of anything. Have you ever noticed that people who are generally positive tend to find the positive aspects of any situation they're in? Conversely, people who are negative find the negative in everything. And no matter what situation they're in, no matter how good it is, they're going to find a way to complain about that because that's the frame through which they see the world. Now, the reason why this leads us to think irrationally is because if we're not aware that we have a frame, then the illusion that we create for ourselves is that we are the ones who see the world objectively. Because here's the thing about irrational behavior. It's very easy to spot it in others, very difficult to spot it within yourself. We are so self-centered that we think that we are the perfect ones, <laughs> right? So for example, you see someone else doing something stupid and you're like, 
that is so stupid. But what you fail to realize is that in their minds, they perceive that as the natural course of action. They perceive that as that is that is normal. That is the right thing to do. However they perceive it, to them, it's not a problem. But when you see someone acting in an irrational way, for example, people tell me, I cannot believe that people will choose to not care about what we do to animals. It's inconceivable to them because to them, it's like, how could you not care? And I agree with that, by the way. I don't, you know, how could you not care? I don't really know. But that being the case, what's important to realize here is that the people who choose to not care in their minds, that makes sense. No matter how irrational it is in their minds, that makes sense. And so the lesson is we too have a certain way in which we interpret the world. And no matter how sure we are that our frame is the correct frame through which we see the world, we can never be too sure. And we always have to be conscious of this. Otherwise, what's going to end up happening is that we're going to believe information that fits within our worldview without questioning it. And we're going to reject information that doesn't fit within our worldview also without thinking about it. For example, have you ever noticed that if you have friends who are into conspiracy theories, what they'll do is that when anything sounds like a conspiracy theory, they will just believe it because the frame through which they see the world is, I believe in conspiracy theories. So if someone comes to them with a conspiracy theory, they're just going to believe it. I noticed this with some people that I know, some acquaintances that I have, that they are conspiracy theorists. And what they'll do is they follow, say on Instagram, they follow these pages that are full of conspiracy theories. And this page has no credibility whatsoever. I don't know where this information comes from, but what, and, and they're always called something like freedom in thoughts. We are the free thinkers of this world. We are the ones who are not brainwashed, you know, whatever it is. And that's how they frame themselves. Now, what happens is that those people who follow those pages, and I'm not saying they're all wrong. I haven't investigated. I don't really know what they say. I'm just trying to illustrate a point here. Okay, I think everyone can be right in certain aspects. So I'm not pooping on anyone. And most importantly, the lesson here is, the, or the question rather is, where are you doing this? Okay, so anyways, getting back to it, what they will do is that because to their, their frame through which they see the world is, I see the world the way that it actually is. I'm not going to be deceived by this surface level thing. I believe there are conspiracy theories. I believe there are people conspiring to do this, this, and that. That's how they perceive the world. Therefore, any story that comes through that confirms that worldview, they're going to believe it just like that. Now, conversely, if you're someone who doesn't believe in conspiracy theories, then maybe notice in yourself Whenever something starts, and I say you because I don't know who you are. I guess this, I'm talking to myself because I, I'm someone who gravitates away from conspiracy theories. But the point is, notice that if something starts sounding like a, like a conspiracy theory, you might just tune it out very, very, very quickly. Because in your worldview, you're like, conspiracy theories are stupid. People who believe in conspiracy theories are irrational. They're the ones who can't think rationally. So you just tune it out as soon as it kind of starts, something starts sounding like that. What we got to be aware of is that this was a very overt example, I think, that maybe a lot of people can relate to, but we do this all the time. We always have these assumptions about how the world works and we filter everything that we perceive through that worldview. 
So for example, that is why people who are not vegan tend to very easily believe stories that reinforce how being vegan is unhealthy or how it's ethical to not be vegan. They'll very easily gobble the stories up because it reinforces the current worldview that they have. That is also why maybe you've had situations where you know someone who they went plant-based for their health or for the environment, but then later down the line, they're open to learning about what happens to animals when previously they were not. Maybe you relate to this yourself. This happens to a lot of people. And maybe in the other direction where you're like, I cared about the animals first, but then I found out about the environment and I found out how a whole food plant-based diet is the healthiest diet that I can be on as a human. Maybe you realize that in reverse. Well, the reason why we're open to that information is because when you become vegan, your actions suggest a certain worldview that this is the right way to act to not consume animal products. And therefore, information that reinforces that is very, very, very easy for you to accept. And you wouldn't vet it as carefully as you would vet some other points that contradicts what you believe. So I wanted to make some of these points clear. And this is a topic that we could discuss for a long, long time. The reason I bring this up is because, like I said at the beginning, I don't believe that I'm above this. That's the entire point. I'm not saying all this as a ho 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 look at me i am the smart one because i know all this and you're the stupid one and by the way have you ever noticed that when someone calls something out you are more likely to believe them because they sound like they're the ones who knows what they're talking about the person accusing always sounds more credible if you go out and say that thing is wrong that person is wrong you automatically know what you're talking about because you have to know what you're talking about in order to say that something is wrong. That's essentially what I did throughout this entire podcast, more or less. What you got to realize is that it's not because someone says that, that they're necessarily right. It's very easy to believe them. We want to believe them because they're the ones calling something out, but it doesn't mean that they're right. So anyways, getting back, I am trying to talk about this from a peer-to-peer perspective. These are just a few of the ways in which I have found that I have been irrational in the past where I wasn't thinking clearly, where I see other people acting in that way. And I still believe that I can act in all the ways that I described today. And there are many, many, many different more ways in which I can be irrational. I think it's important for us to be aware of this because one, it helps us from a personal level. It's going to help you because now you're going to be able to direct your life in a much more conscious way. From a world perspective, you can have a much clearer idea and you can think through problems way more clearly and you're you're going to be much more flexible in the coming up of solutions. And in terms of understanding others, it helps you develop empathy because now when you talk to people and they're being irrational, if you're aware that we can all be irrational, you can go study this. And when you talk to people, you can understand better why they act the way that they act. And maybe you even have solutions as to how to deal with certain situations in an effective way that actually is conducive to change or a change of heart or or whatever it is that you're looking to create or mutual understanding or whatever it is. So for a quick summary of everything that we talked about, first, I started off by illustrating how there are many things that maybe you believed in the past that one day you realized that was completely wrong, but at the time you were so sure that was true. The lesson we should get out of that is that we can still be wrong about literally anything, no matter how sure we are of it. 
Second, reliably creating knowledge is extremely difficult. Remember that conversation we had about peer-reviewed research, about how many of us, we don't have the skills and knowledge necessary to even know what that is or know how to go seek that out. And even when we do, it's very difficult to read. And even then, there can still be problems. The point is not to be ultra skeptical of everything. I read a story in a philosophy book of this philosopher a long, long time ago. I forgot his name, but what he would do is that he would be skeptical of everything. If you've ever had a dream where you're convinced in the dream that you're awake, basically what that tells you is that you can't trust your senses. You might think you're awake right now as you're listening to this. You think you're awake, but maybe you're not because you've had experiences where you've been dreaming and you're convinced it was real. And this philosopher, what he did is because of that, he said, I can't trust my senses. So he would stand at the edge of a cliff And he would say, I don't know if I'm going to die if I jump off because I can't trust my senses. I can't trust this emotion of fear that's inside me. Now that's pushing it a little too far. And the point is not to be skeptical of absolutely everything. I think that most people are not skeptical enough. We should have a, a healthy level of skepticism when it comes to anything, including what you're listening to right now, as I've pointed out many times throughout this podcast. But at the same time, we can't be skeptical of everything. We just have to be aware every time that we think about something, every time that we try to learn about something, what are the pitfalls of learning about this in this way? Where could we be wrong? We always have to be thinking about that. From there, we went into a discussion about mental biases. We talked about the sunk cost fallacy. You can think about it as investment. And then we closed by talking about different worldviews that we have and how we all have a lens through which we see the world. And if we're not aware of that, Although the lens through which we see the world is going to affect the way in which we perceive the world, we are going to be unaware of it. It's going to look like it's a clear glass. And that's the most dangerous thing because then you're interpreting things in a way that's not completely objective because I don't think that's possible. But because you're not aware of it, you're going to think that you're seeing the world in an objective way and you're just not going to be thinking clearly. So I know I started off by saying that I want to prove to you that humans are stupid. And I said that as kind of a joke, kind of as not a joke. It's not really a joke, but the point of this is not to say, oh, we're all incredibly stupid. The point of this is to point out how we can all be irrational. And hopefully this will lead you to think about exercise and learn about different mental biases that you have and learn how to think more clearly. And I wanted to talk about this because on one hand, I do really believe that if you learn how to think more clearly, that will lead to a lot more long-term happiness for you personally. But also, I think it would make the world a much, much better place. So thank you for listening to this episode of the Animal Advocate Podcast. I hope you enjoyed. I hope this was useful to you. If it was, I would love if you could leave me a review or a rating. I think you can do that on Apple Podcasts. I love hearing your feedback and it goes a long way in supporting the podcast. If you want to support my work in general, you can do so at Patreon at patreon.com slash peace by vegan. Over there, I post behind the scenes content for a lot of the major uploads that I do on YouTube. Anyways, thank you again so much for your time. I appreciate you. Think clearly. And until next time, let's keep defending animals.